Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TiffNow, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Robert Connolly, an Australian writer, director, and producer whose features include The Bank, Paper Planes, and The Dry, among others. His latest, Blueback, is a bit of a departure, starring Mia Wasikowska, Rada Mitchell, and Connolly's frequent collaborator Eric Bana in a story about an environmental activist determined to save Australia's coral reef thanks to a childhood meeting with a wonderful little sea creature. It had its world premiere at Toronto last September, and now it's available on digital and on-demand across North America. Robert chose The Navigator, a medieval odyssey, Vincent Ward's 1988 breakout fantasy about a band of villagers in 14th century England who follow an odd lad named Griffin on a dangerous quest to save their village from the Black Death and find themselves in modern-day New Zealand, where their quest becomes exponentially more dangerous. A time travel movie about faith, hope, and charity, and a very personal apocalypse story, The Navigator was an art house sensation, challenging audiences' ideas of what genre films could be, and launching Ward on a fascinating, if frustrating, career. 35 years later, there's still nothing else like it. That's why we're talking about it. This is someone else's movie. I think you always look at when you um, chose to become a filmmaker and the films that made you think that cinema could take you on an adventure that transported you thematically and emotionally and visually. And and I saw that film when it came out and um, I just couldn't quite believe it. I, I always loved science fiction. So I'd love things that were a bit more fantastical. I'd read science fiction as a young person. 2001, A Space Odyssey had been a massive impact on me <clears throat> as a young as a young boy. And I saw that film and I didn't feel like from our part of the world, coming from Australia, and this is a New Zealand film, um, that we could do films like that. And I think New Zealand cinema has been able to. And it, uh, it took me on a journey that I... I found quite lyrical and elliptical and made me contemplate things and puzzle over things. And, and then, of course, I began the investigation into who Vincent Ward was and I saw Vigil, which I mean, we could talk about that for hours too. <laughs> it's one of the greatest films ever made. Um, but uh, but Na- The Navigator was the one. It kind of spurred something. I, I then went on to work for 25 years with the producer of The Navigator. I, I rang him and I, I was at film school and I met him and, I said, can you mentor me? And he said, of course. And for 25 years, we, we worked together making amazing, amazing films together. Oh, I didn't know so that. It changed my life, that film, really. That's wonderful. I um, My experience of it was simply wandering into it uh, at an independent theater a few months after its TIFF premiere, as it turns out, it played here in 1988. I, I knew it was here, but I missed it and caught up to it at this great big old single screen house called the bloor it's now the hot doc cinema in toronto and i was just completely enveloped by the formal daring really i mean i think now we're used to it and i mean it's not that black and white to color is a new thing obviously it goes back to the wizard of oz and even probably for some short works before that but the way he the way Ward used it and the way he just immerses you in the muck of that world and then brings you into the present is so audacious, yeah. uh, especially yeah. if you don't know that that's where it's going. And I hadn't paid yeah. enough attention to it at the time that it just completely took me by surprise. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, um, you're absolutely right. The audacious nature of it really surprised me and it made me think storytelling could be 
whatever I wanted it to be. And also, of course, it's a celebration of what storytelling is. You know, the boy tells the story to save the village from the plague. It's the power of storytelling. Here, here is a film, audacious in form, that is also celebrating <laughs> the very form that it's a part of. It's amazing. Yeah, I am, I admit it, a huge sucker for movies that treat mythology and fable and faith head on, you know, without any, yeah. any uh, garlanding, I suppose is the term I would use. Um, and, and Ward sort of does that in his later work too, as the budgets get bigger yes. and he's capable of doing that sort of thing. But the fact that there is nothing to work with here, that he really just has the dialogue and the performances to sell the, the whole concept, it's, it's somehow more powerful. I think it's, it's just, yeah. it's electrifying to watch people wrestle with these things in, in sort of real time with limited reach and understanding and try to make sense of the world. I I love that you invite me to talk about a film that I love, that I suggest a film, and I go, maybe you'll know it. (laughs) Not only know it, but you've seen it in the cinema. You saw a a print of that. I mean, it played at Cannes. It was in competition in Cannes, and then it came to TIFF, and it went on this amazing journey. And But uh, isn't that fascinating? It's pretty pretty cool, actually, that um, that you've actually seen the print of it. You know, a 35 mil print projected in a cinema of my favorite film. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it's more and more rare these days to be able to stretch back and, and remember these things on film. And I've seen it, you know, subsequently on disc, and it's fine. It's not that it's lost anything in the transition, but the, well, maybe it has, I suppose, the texture of 35, especially with the black and white and the and the grain. I mean, all of these things are so crucial to the experience. And they were intended to be part of the the aesthetic of the film, which yeah, is not something yeah, you can do anymore unless you're, you know, Damien Chazelle and you have millions of dollars to spend on post-production processing. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, the, it, it's a film that warrants like a, a very serious 4K remaster or scan. I don't think it's been done yet. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure, but it but it definitely warrants it because what I'm seeing is a lot of the technology now is capturing more of that sense of the texture of what cinema is and and was and um, so you know I think as a film you know it kind of begs to be mastered. I don't think it's on the Criterion Collection, is it? They do a pretty good job of mastering a lot of these films. Arrow has it in the UK. I'm not sure who's got it in North America. The rights were always a bit messy here. Um, yeah, Arrow did release right. a beautiful edition of Vigil uh, I love that film, a couple too. of years back. And they yeah, are sort of in conversation monster. with each other, aren't they? The the two earlier. Yeah. 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 When I went to New Zealand for the first time, and I felt like I'd been there before, and I realized I had been there before in Vigil. I'd felt the valley I was in. I'd felt it. But temperature, the color, the atmosphere, the mud, the sky, the, I'd felt it all. He, he's, he's a masterful filmmaker, Vincent. Yeah, I've only met him the one time we, uh, he came to TIFF again with River Queen, which is a strange eccentric um, sort of indigenous mashup, a uh, cultural mashup of indigenous and, and colonizer cultures um, with Samantha Morton yeah. and, and Kiefer Sutherland. And it's, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he had 
he came here and told this remarkable story of having been fired from the film and then brought back on to to finish it in post-production. And he was so matter-of-fact about it. I think he was almost amused by it. And it's... <laughs> I couldn't tell, talking to him, if, it, if he was amused at the idea that someone would think they could make a movie of his without him, that they could finish it without him on board, or yeah. that he was just amused at the entire process of it because... You know, he he had this period where, with Map of the Human Heart and uh, What Dreams May Come, where he was suddenly being courted to make these huge, ambitious films that were basically chasing the high of The Navigator. I mean, it, yeah. it's and and yeah. even Alien Three, right? He was part of the production early on that, yeah. where yeah. people were just offering him these gargantuan projects, and he figured out ways to make them work. And then they found tiny, loyal audiences. Uh, the, the two films he actually got made in the 90s uh, while still kind of alienating most mass audience responses. He's he's this fantastically specific filmmaker. You can point to yeah. anything he does and know it's him, but he's also completely resistant to popular success somehow. Yeah, I know. It's a fascinating challenge for any filmmaker, mm -hmm. I guess, how personal and idiosyncratic you, you want your work to be and your point of view to be. And a world that kind of expects that it expects you to be distinctive, but also audiences that actually enjoy genre tropes, celebrity. You know, they they enjoy a bit of chutzpah in the filmmaking, and so which which Vincent of course has, but but it's this kind of balancing act, you know. And some filmmakers, an Australian filmmaker like a filmmaker like Baz Luhrmann, just knows how to do it. He knows how to juggle all those balls and get mass audiences to see his idiosyncratic work, whatever you think of it. Um, and then you've got other filmmakers, and I think Vincent's probably one of them, that, you know, in many ways his films do speak of big universal things and they, you know, like What Dreams May Come in lots of ways, you know, could have been a more, a more commercial film than it probably was because it had big movie star in the lead and... And it had a visual ambition that I thought was pretty, pretty awesome, pretty original. Yeah, um, you know we love we love the originality, and we want a little bit of this commerciality at the same time. It's a it's such a contradiction. It is, and it's the thing that I think even he wrestles with here and there. Um, he clearly wants these films to break out. I mean, they're they're yeah. they're fables, right? He he's telling the most simple form of story, uh, really. Uh, and it's always, you know, a person goes on a journey. That's that's the. I mean, you could. Uh, I wish I could remember who it was. Maybe it was Dashiell Hammett who said that all of fiction can be reduced to someone goes on a journey or a stranger comes to town. There's really the only. <laughs> there's just that. Yeah. But but his yeah. are always about people moving outwards, which I find compelling and fascinating in their own way. Yeah, they're kind of quite epic in that regard. You know, the journey Robin Williams goes on to find his wife in What Dreams May Come or, you know, this boy leading these people into the present in this amazing tour de force orig orig of originality in The Navigator. You're absolutely right, that kind of the epic. And that's what I, th I guess I, I loved when I saw the film was this sense of, oh, stories can be, you know, big. I mean, I'd been taken to this little eccentric cinema in Sydney 
run by the Hare Krishnas and you could go and see a film there and they'd give you a meal. And, and my dad took me there when I was young to see The Seventh Seal, you know, and I hadn't seen any Bergman at that point and I wasn't even considering being a filmmaker. And he said, I want to show you my favourite film and so we go and see that film. There are elements of the influence of that film on Vincent, which you see really clearly in The Navigator. So years later, if I think of these films percolating, you know, my mother takes my brother and I off to see, you know, this terrible documentary, The Bible is History, you know, two good Catholic boys going to learn about how the, you know, a terrible documentary and we were very little and we had to travel on a train for two hours to get there and and then my mum realised we were so, we'd been so well behaved, she took us down the road to see 2001 A Space Odyssey, you know, which changed my, blew my brain. So which has a structural, an interesting structural conceit in its storytelling. Yeah. Like the cryptic nature of it. So, Well, I was going to say it's a religious experience in its own right. It was a much bigger religious experience than learning about the Bible as history. Um, and, um, but, you know, I can feel as a young creative person forming my thinking, you know, my father showing me the seventh seal, my mum taking me to 2001 and, you know, this is in the 70s and, you know, by the 80s I'm finishing school and going to film school and then, starting to see films and the navigator comes along and it's made by a New Zealand filmmaker close to home and it feels like it's got all of the ambition of these big auteurs, these big global auteurs. And it's no surprise that Vincent, both Vigil and the Navigator, were both in competition in Cannes one year after the other. I mean he he is a superb, you know, superb and ambitious filmmaker. And in lots of ways I wish I wish there were more films that you and I could talk about <laughs> that he'd that he'd made. He has been doing some visual art actually and having exhibitions of his work in New Zealand and focusing a lot of visual art. And I think he's finishing a film at the moment. I had heard he'd moved away from feature development at one point, but maybe ten years ago. But I'm not I'm not even sure where I'd heard that. It's just one of those things you you sort of casually hear this person's name and it's like, Oh, that's right. I love his work. Yeah. Where is he? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um but I think I think we, we'll see more of him. You know, I feel like his, you know, work kind of stands the test of time. And I think Vigil for me, although I wanted to talk about The Navigator because it's more of a specific influence, I think, and, and it was the first of his films that I saw. When I went back and saw Vigil, I, I kind of was gobsmacked by its capacity to evoke landscape. And, you know, my recent films, The Dry and the sequel to The Dry Force of Nature, in both of those cases, I, sh I showed Vigil to all of the heads of departments before we made those films. Uh -huh. And I said, this is the boldness of landscape that we need to be reaching for. You know, John Maynard says, you know, the producer of Vigil and the Navigator and also Jane Campion Sweetie, an amazing, you know, figure in world cinema himself, he always said, yeah, yeah, you know, you want that, feeling of landscape in vigil well, the way we did it was we filmed for four months we only shot a little bit every day they had people waiting on the tops of the valley looking out and if in, if the sun was breaking they stopped filming you know and they were able to you know they built the little town they brought the ducks in that you see you know <laughs> and he and he said often cinema now has a model much more like television it's, it's kind of all contracted you shoot very fast and that's largely driven by actor availability mm. So you have a culture that needs celebrities. 
celebrity actors have managers and agents. They want them to work as much as they can. They tell you you can have this actor, but you can only have them for three weeks. You know, everything can track into, you know, whereas cinema as an art form requires space and exploration and, you know, I always describe it as, you know, reaching for a feeling on set that you're splashing paint on a canvas every day. And it's very hard to do that in an industrial process like filmmaking. But I think when you look at Vigil, it definitely was made in a different way to how contemporary cinema is. Well, I think about how watchful it feels, even compared to The Navigator, which is much more frenzied. I mean, obviously, there's there's a plague going on, there's impending death, and the whole culture shock of it is going to push the the it sort of spikes the adrenaline level fairly early on yeah and, and vigil just title alone right i mean it tells you you're going to see something deliberate and patient and contemplative but of course if you yes. shoot it that way you're going to capture that as well right yes. the unhurried pace of it just translates into the frame somehow that's right that's right i wonder and i've pondered this a lot in the new world order of streaming and, uh, you know, my film, The Dry, um, which very successfully released in the US by IFC, but very early on, uh, Netflix viewed the film and said, oh, it's too slow. Our audience will find it too slow. And, of course, by the time it plays on Netflix, it opens at number one. It does very well. But their perception is our audiences on the small screen need things to be faster. They need more narrative, thing, which is a discussion that you have when you direct television, not cinema. Because with cinema, an audience has paid the money. They're in the cinema. They're not going to leave in the first 10 minutes. You can take a little bit of time settling them in. I love that as a narrative structure. But it makes me ponder whether we're looking at a different aesthetic that we'll start for the years from now we'll feel. Because, and I'm guilty of it myself, watching things on Netflix, on Tide or on other streaming platforms. And if it doesn't capture me, it's like I'll, I'll watch something else. You know, so the way people consume on those platforms is a bit more with an expectation of a different engagement. But cinema has the great joy of establishing the rhythm and then surprising you with a great dynamic shape to the film as you progress into it. And Vincent's film, again, you know, it's um, a meditative film, but that has great um, emotional legs and on stages that really stay with you for many years and yeah. forever. Yeah. Like great art should. <laughs> I'm always shocked when Netflix sort of presumes to explain how cinema works when their entire model is devoted to oversaturation and to you know, having, uh, um, what's, what's even, what is even the right term? Having an incalculable signal to noise ratio. I mean, you are just, yeah. you're flipping through tiles longer than it will take you to watch anything you will eventually choose to watch, or, you know, exactly what you want. And then you go get it. If it's there, that's great. But the model is always designed to keep you watching. So they'll do an entire season of television, which is a prequel to the show they want to make. You know, like it always, it all ends with the place, with the pieces in place to have a really great second season or demand that a show run 12 or 15 episodes. Well, I guess those are unreasonable numbers now, but something can be 10 episodes when it should be eight or 12 episodes when it should be six. And so many of these projects are clearly features that were converted to 
television structures because that's how you sell them. And then you're stuck with repetitive episodes or scenes that don't even need to be there. And, and all the, all the, all the fat, all the, the extra flesh on these things is exhausting. And finding a movie and watching a movie somehow is the thing they least want you to do because it is a one and done unless it's their movie that week. They're just not interested. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, I know. I think it was the Coen brothers said, someone was asking them, they oh, doubled in television, what they thought of TV. And they said, well, we like endings. We like the end of stories. Yeah. And television's about a beginning and a middle and a middle and a middle and a middle. And some people like that. They like that narrative uh, experience and they can delve into something and, and allow the second act or the, the middle just to go on and on and on and complicate and and I've been in those writers' rooms, you know, and people coming up with plot. You've got a character that should be incidental and everyone's throwing stuff at you and you're kind of fleshing it out and, and it becomes all of the white noise around the film. And we know that in some certain works of television that is extraordinary. Yeah, and it can you, be. You, could, you can inhabit that world for years, like a Madman or a Sopranos or Succession or, you know, the massive um, – uh, success of the last of us in recent weeks, you know, and people and the death and the incredible boldness of form of that actually, um, in its narrative form. Yep. But a lot of the time, it's like soap for me. You've got to be the type of person that, that I'm kind of with the Khan brothers. I like, I like an ending, like I like a novel, and you begin reading a novel and you know the author has worked out how it will conclude. You know, I remember picking up at the airport, I was traveling from some festival, Cormac McCarthy's The Road, and I knew nothing about it, and I started reading it. And I read it, and I read it, and I got off the plane, and I got the taxi home, and it was in the dark at home, the whole family, and I'm and I'm crying at 3 o'clock in the morning as I finished the book. That's the experience I crave. An author took me on a journey from the beginning. Someone goes on a journey, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> quite a big journey. It's a big one. In the middle that is, you know, very emotional and, very, and then concludes it. And the last page of that book I've read a hundred times to try and comprehend it's such a beautiful resolution, the way he describes the fish and the water and and what humanity's lost. And and so that's the thing with what, with narrative form of cinema, which is why I love it and why I feel it can be consumed like a great book that you actually you, you start and you end. And that's why I... I love watching films in the cinema. That's why I love that you saw The Navigator in the cinema. I wasn't <laughs> expecting it, you know. It's like uh, oh, because no. I did I did too. I remember the cinema in Sydney. I remember the feeling of what coming out and going, Oh my lord, that was staggering work and but but that's where I think people miss it. They think cinema's just about seeing things on the big screen as opposed to a small screen. Well, people have massive cinemas and massive audio and no, cinema is about, is about choosing to go out to something. It's about buying the tickets. It's about the expectation. It's about turning up and having a glass of wine and popcorn, and it's about sitting down. Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to bring you up to speed on Shiny Things, my twice-weekly newsletter about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming project. 
Titles to be covered this week include Criterion's new editions of Peter Bogdanovich's Targets and Celine Sciamma's Petit Maman, John Woo's long-lost Jackie Chan film Hand of Death, and Shohei Imamura's Warm Water Under a Red Bridge, which is finally out on Blu-ray. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io or find a link at the Semcast Twitter account. You like reading about movies, right? Come check it out. Yeah, I, I actually really, surprisingly, because uh, I, I, it was over the break and I was trying to not think about film, but someone gave me Tarantino's book, Cinema Speculation. Oh, yeah. And, and I just devoured it. It's about him and the films in the 70s that he loved. And it's him kind of rambling about where he saw them, how he saw them, his mum sneaking him in, why they're important. And then this kind of fanboy love of them from a great auteur. And it, it just felt like such a celebration. Of, and he, you know, some of them were films that were available in the video shops, but all the ones he describes were moments where he watched them in the cinema. Yeah. And that um, has to change your relationship to the material, I think. The, it's, it's, absolutely. You know, Spielberg calls movie theaters halls of worship, right? Where we all go and point in the same direction and share the same dream. And yeah. it's yeah. flowery, but it's like literally true that the alpha state of cinema of watching a movie is a sort of hypnosis. It's a sort of, of conscious dreaming yeah. where, yeah. and we all interpret it differently, which is the thing I love the most about it. You know, 400 people will be in a room having the exact same experience and every one of them will come out with a different take on it. Yeah. Uh, some yeah. of them will obviously be wrong, but you know, the ones who agree <laughs> with me, I'm happy about those. But it's, um, it is like, it's like nothing else. We don't have another medium like this there's no. music which is you know similar and theater which is dependent on the audience in a way that film isn't yeah. i think to to find the energy and share it in a room but but i keep coming back to the movies because they're just they're my thing they always have been my my grandfather owned a movie theater when i was a kid so i had no chance at a normal life you uh you grow up there in a projection go. booth and it's just like oh i know these things i love this stuff more please yeah, yeah yeah and uh and over the over the break i did i admit it i upgraded my home theater too i've got 4k and atmos here and uh it's very Excellent. comfortable and nice and warm <laughs> and all of that but it's not a movie theater it's not uh a hall the same way it's it's just yeah. not as it's somehow even though it's my own home it's not as intimate as a as a cinema and i yeah i really do wonder what somebody like ward who who makes films for the big screen and i hadn't realized the connection between uh, the production connection on on his early films in sweetie because sweetie and the navigator are tied very tightly together in my mind as well they came out a year apart i, I think, know yeah, yeah i think john might have produced vigil sweetie then the navigator all three in competition in Cannes one year after the other i, I think that's how it worked and he was a young producer he'd run a very innovative art gallery the Gavit Brewster gallery in um, New New Plymouth in New Zealand and as a young man he was Australian but he'd done incredible work there and I think he gravitated to filmmakers as artists and Vincent had made a very bold film called In One Plants Alone and uh, and I guess um, Jane Campion had um, made her great short films Peel of which was staggering um, they also worked with uh, Alison McLean, um, oh, John, John, Crush, John's right? partner. Yeah, Crush. Yes, John, right. John's partner, Bridget Iken. So John produced Sweetie, and then Bridget produced An Angel at My Table. 
and John were, was one of the producers on that too. And, okay. and as a couple, um, Bridget had pr- produced the incredible short film Kitchen Sink, you know, which was Alison, which I saw in a cinema <laughs> as the short film before Sweetie. So the similar time, I'm, I'm working in theatre. I'm a theatre director, not a filmmaker. I go to the cinema. There's this incredible short film Kitchen Sink. Oh, my Lord. Then after that, I watch Sweetie, which is a precursor to all of that Australian comedy. If you look at it, it's before Strictly Ballroom, Muriel's Wedding, Priscilla, any that kind of suburban satire that you get in Muriel's Wedding. I mean, you look back, Sweetie was the seminal film. Yeah. And, then, and of course... Uh, it's just not McClane. funny, so of course people are... You know, That's they rarely. Right. I mean, it is. It's sort of funny, but it's the yeah. garishness and the and the the visual palette. You know, those those intense colors and strange yeah. American sitcom look that somehow translates wrong because the light is different, which I I just think is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, right. Yeah, I never thought so. So when you think of of producers, <clears throat> you know, and I, I direct and produce, and my company's championing all manner of filmmakers as well as my own work and um you you have to kind of go well, what were they they were doing something special but those films were all extraordinary so i i was at film school and i reached out to john maynard because i'd seen his name on these films those three films vigil and navigator and uh, sweetie and and because i thought okay there's something going on here there's a great and, and Angel on my table's worth a revisit too if you haven't seen it for a while. It's mm-hmm. really interesting. Um narrative structure with the three acts. It was made for television yeah. and then they released it as a, as a film. But um but yeah, a very formative time for me. You know, where Art House Cinema actually the cinema in the heart of Sydney, part of the Sydney C B D called Martin Place, and there was a cinema and it was kind of where you'd go on a date. You know, I was a 19, 20-year-old, and and you'd go and see whatever was on. Like, it, it, you wouldn't actually choose. And it wasn't like an art. There was another cinema, the Valhalla, which was more a, an art house cinema that would play Koyana Squads, and everyone would get stoned and go and watch that. Or it, 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 You know, it was kind of that. But was the, the one in Martin Place was more curated. And right. uh, you'd go there and see. I remember seeing Once Were Warriors there, actually, and, and coming out and everyone was just sitting around just overwhelmed by that film. God, that would be nice to be able to experience that and be closer to it. I mean, obviously those films will hit home differently in Australian theaters than they would in New Zealand theaters yes, too, course. right? Than they yes. would here. Here yeah. they were always sort of abstracted. Um, and, you know, Canada is a nation with its own indigenous population and its own indigenous issues and, and tensions, but, Somehow, I think it always feels just so completely different. The landscape is different. The the textures are different. It, it yeah. felt it felt like a transmission from another. I mean, it felt like what it was. It felt like film from the other side of the world. Yeah, yeah. And to to relate to it on a personal level, I mean, how how would that work? Did they do they do they feel contemporary in the moment when you're watching them? It's, it's a. I think so. I think when I remember it, I felt like the cinema felt very vital like very you know it 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 didn't feel like something that old people went to <laughs> you know it it felt a bit more punk or something like that you went there and cinema you know it had an edge to it 
And so you'd go there and you'd be seeing the work and you'd talk about it afterwards and engage with it in a way. And these are quite political works in some ways as well. Oh, yeah. And a very controversial scene in um, in The Navigator, which I, I read interviews, I think, you know, various critics pushed Vincent on why he did it. But there's a moment where they've made their way from the Black Plague into modern-day New Zealand and they're looking in the window and all these TVs have got this ad a very powerful ad with the Grim, Grim Reaper at the heart of HIV and AIDS. And it was a very effective advertising campaign, but people said he didn't need to make the connection for the audience that there was currently a, um, you know, a, a parallel connection that he could draw. Uh, you know, he he um, he got criticised for that actually, and I remember some critics just took offence to it, or you know, and felt like it it. Um, was unnecessary, but I think it was really bold choice. It kind of made the film feel here and now at that moment that ad was playing. Well, and it also gives the characters from the 14th century something to connect to in the present that, yeah, you know, to, to see the iconography of death and plague and further convince them that they are still in the same world. I, I mean, I love That's the right. adjustment. They simply assume that big cities have these things that they've never been able to experience before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the, and it nicely gets around the sense of, I would say, terror that we would have being thrust into the future, where you would have absolutely no way to to negotiate anything that you didn't recognize. You know, the joke. I, there was a David Letterman joke right around the same time about, you know, the, the five things that Abraham Lincoln would say today, and one of them was, "Ah, Iron Bird," and <laughs> yeah, because how would you even cope? And here, there's this this innocence that the characters have. And it is, I suppose, on another interpretation, it's just ignorance where they yeah. they simply don't, they're not smart enough to understand the concept of moving forward through centuries. But yeah. the way that it happens, that sort of naturalistic accident of just popping up through the wrong, in the wrong time period yeah. um, and going with it somehow plays to me as even more convincing. It's the thing that sells it. If there had been a moment where someone tries to explain it, it wouldn't work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not a literal thing, is it? It's is is reaching for some idea that this young boy might just be telling a story about to them, and that they're all listening. And and it just flows that way. Yeah, yeah. They don't physically make that transition. They they imagine a future. And um, there's a great device. I'm just rereading a book, John Wyndham's The Chrysalids. A, book I read when I was much younger, sci-fi in there, mm. it has a great conceit in it that it begins with set in a world a thousand years from now and and you think that they're talking about the past and this place and this city and but actually they're, they're imagining a future that is real. And, and I, I think those devices like you're describing go best unexplained because it's fun, isn't it, as an audience? Yeah. It's fun. It's like you can take people out of the cinema afterwards and you can probably have a disagreement about whether it was a flashback or a flash forward or, you know, whether it was imagined or real. You know, you can imagine the script notes. Yeah, but how do they travel to the future? We need an environmental cataclysm that will that some people can understand as a right. scientist. No, no, these guys just burrow through the earth and come up in modern day New Zealand. <laughs> unexplained. Yeah. Why wouldn't they? For, I mean, that's how that works. For, yeah, for your listeners who haven't seen the film, it'll be a real, because it's a very commercial film. 
It won all the Australian Film Institute Awards. It made a lot of money at the box office. Actually, very commercial film. And even by today's standards, it, it would stack up. Yeah, I mean, it played around the world. It was it was very well received, I think. I mean, I, I only remember the positives 30-odd um, years later, but it holds up narratively, and there's nothing in it because, you know, it's set in 1988. Well, when they finally get there, it doesn't feel like an imagined future. It's just nuts and bolts, whatever was in front of the camera. Yeah. Um, so your brain accepts it. Uh, more easily. Yeah. It's it's strange. It's why, you know, science fiction and, and I think why genre films from the 80s have, and 90s have held up very well is the, the only thing that dates about them are the hairstyles. The, <laughs> you know, the imagination doesn't change. You're still That's shooting right. for more than you can possibly deliver and, and telling the story with as much as you can muster. Yeah. Yeah. New Zealand. I, I always felt back then trying to develop my own films early in my career that New Zealand did have a, more of a sense of a non-naturalistic boldness mm. and Australia was a bit trapped, you know. I mean, we'd had all the genre films and, you know, there'd been this point where George Miller had made Mad Max and Peter Weir had made Picking and Hanging Rock and, yeah. and, you know, the industry, it's kind of split a little. But but an, an, an Australian naturalism set in and I think New Zealand cinema was able to make films like The Navigator. The other film, of course, is The Quiet Earth. That's exactly what I was about great, to mention, yeah. great film of that time and very simple, simple idea. Last Man on Earth story, again, great genre. Mm -hmm. A well-explored genre and a very good New Zealand uh, spin on it. That's another one that I was lucky enough to see at the Blur too. I think the Blur was the art house I went to the most often as a, yeah, as a teenager. Yeah, of, of our... Oh, it sounds like it, yeah. Place. Smack yeah. in the middle of uh, of the annex, which is our college neighborhood where University of Toronto is and where most of the students end up. And you would just go there, see whatever, and then go to the restaurant across the road and spend hours breaking things down and talking them over. And I remember The Quiet Earth was one where nobody was even hungry afterwards. We all just wanted to go out and stand around for a while. <laughs> it's worth reading the book it's based on, actually. I never have, yeah. Well, because it explains things a bit more. I can never tell whether that's a good thing or not because after 2001 A Space Odyssey, I went and read Arthur C. Clarke's the short story and then the book and then, of course, he wrote 2010 and then 2016. And all of a sudden something that's like a, unexplained becomes it's kind of it's a reductive process of making it real. Um, but I, I do remember in the book there's a great moment because, of course, everyone disappears on Earth at this one moment in the film where these scientists are experimenting with mice, you know, and they come back in and the, the, the cage is locked and the mice are all gone. And and it, it's a kind of forewarning that whatever mm -hmm. they're doing could lead to the entire human race disappearing in a moment. And I love those sci-fi tropes. It's, it's like unexplored territory for me directing sci-fi. I've been directing for 25 years. My, my first film, The Bank, which played at TIFF, um, and was produced by John Maynard, who produced those films, had a very scientific bent of a man predicting the stock market using um, chaos theory and fractal theory. But but I but I think science fiction is is one area that I just put on on the bucket list at some point. Come on, I've got to. It's it's a passion, you know. I've got to find the right the right work to do. Yeah, I mean, these final hours, which you produced, comes close, right? Yeah. I mean, it's an apocalypse story. Yeah, I'm so proud of that film. And I, I kind of more mentored those guys on that. I mean, Zach and Liz. And and, uh, and I loved its ambition. 
reaching. And I think we're starting to see a lot of Australian filmmakers that are, we've been very strong in horror for quite a few years now. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, but there, I am mother. There, there are a few filmmakers that are younger filmmakers that are coming through and getting opportunities now. And of course, Jennifer gets the Babadook in the horror space, you sure. know, just pushing out of the naturalism a bit. <clears throat> but yeah, you're right. These final hours had that. You get a good end of the world story, the last day on earth story. That's a good genre. Yeah. I mean, you can't, I was going to say you can't go wrong, but of course you can. There's always going to be a bad one. But um, when I think about, you know, Don McKellar's last night here in Canada, where he imagined a very polite end of the world, um, because that's who we are and, or who we believe ourselves to be anyway. And having revisited that a couple of years ago, it's, it's remarkable how well it holds up and how much it says about Toronto, specifically Toronto culture at the time. But it's, it's also a very white film by necessity, I think, in 1998. But now um, it doesn't even feel like Toronto anymore because things are so much, have become so much more multicultural, both in the city visibly and in terms of the people making the entertainment. So if you're trying to picture a version of it now, you just have so many more people to choose from, so much more of a cast to build on and, and entirely different cultures that would be experiencing this event in the same way. And that's, I think that's where science fiction becomes really fascinating too, because it is always about asking what if, but it's also always about what's happening right now. And so you'd see the the intersection becoming just more and more vital as you go. Yeah. Yeah. And the more political it is, the better. The more it's about us, the better. Yeah. I've never really been fantasy. I've more erred on the science fiction side. I'm less Lord of the Rings and mm. more uh, towards the, the, you know, the, the more robust, solid science fiction. But, you know, you, you look at the great authors from H.G. Wells right through um, that have all have spoken about what was going on in the world at that moment. And the science fiction always speaks of, you know, from George Orwell writing 1984 in 1948, yeah. just flipping the numbers, <laughs> you know, to, to be hypothetical. But it's wonderful how cinema, cinema is a great space for science fiction. It's great. It's a, the only problem is the spectacle of cinema has become a bit irritating. But I feel like Marvel films have, you know, like I, I think once dinosaurs walk, worked on, walked on Earth again, so effectively in the first Jurassic Park, you could see anything. So that's why a film like Ex Machina works so well because it's not about the spectacle. It's just an intellectually interesting, you know, work with a couple of tour de force performances. And so um, the spectacle kind of limits emerging filmmakers from thinking they can make science fiction, you know, mm-hmm. because you think you've got to have the epic scale of June, the beautiful map paintings, digital map paintings of June. But uh, but I always think that they're, they're little boutique, they're like the Quiet Earth. It's interesting. Yeah. It's I due, mean, the, do you remake that film? I wonder if you could. I mean, the biggest effects involved are just clearing space, right? And making sure there's yeah. nothing in the frame. Yeah. And, I mean, you mentioned Ex Machina, and I think that the greatest effects in that film are in their the actors' faces. I mean, yes, there's yeah. the suit that, that – uh, Alicia Vikander is wearing, but that's something your brain just sort of accepts after a few minutes, and they probably found ways to cheat it just to save money and not have to do a CGI brain or anything. But it is really about watching, yeah, just the conversation, the ideas going back and forth. Yeah. And that 
theme where Oscar Isaac dances with Android. Yeah. I mean, hey, you, you just got to have a couple of what is it? Martin Scorsese said every film needs four great scenes. Oh yeah, you, you've, uh, got, you've got to look at your film and make sure you got four. You don't need forty. Yeah, you've got to find four. I think he was riffing really on great yeah, because Billy Wilder said three great scenes and no bad ones. That was the rule. Okay, is that right? And that Scorsese, right? Yeah. I can see him topping it with four. I can see him going. Yeah, going. <laughs> Billy Wilder could get away with three. But, <laughs> yeah, it's like, I hold um, myself to a higher standard. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating conundrum, really, for the stories we want to, we want to see. I think all the streaming services have unlocked a fascination with genre. Mm. And science fiction does very well on streaming. Yeah. It's the junk so food, seeing, right? It's the stuff that we come home and crave. Yeah. Guilty pleasure stories are, are often underrated. And, and guilty pleasure stories that are told by great auteurs with really interesting points of view on great performances can really surprise you. Yeah, but I've never really – I know Vincent, but I, I've never asked him where the idea came from with the Navigator. I oh. asked Howie. But curious, he went to America and, yeah, worked on Alien 3. Mm-hmm. And wanted a wood planet filled with monks, and you can just sort of yeah. see pieces of it survive. I, I would love to. He wouldn't talk about it. I, I, I broached it when we met, and he just wasn't, well, let's talk about the movie I've just made. Let's talk about the present day. And I was like, but I want to know. <laughs> yeah. He did say that the Navigator comes from a an incident in his own life where he tried to cross an Autobahn in Germany and got stuck. Uh, just couldn't get, couldn't make it across, and got trapped in the middle. I think on a on a uh, an island, yes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and just tried to trying to figure out how he could time himself to get across. Started thinking about what it would be like if someone with no knowledge of cars found themselves on the space, and supposedly well, that's where it came from. Okay, okay, that's good. But so much more, and and too, when you know, we're talking about how how stripped down genre can be and how you don't need a lot. I, it's, I, I do find it fascinating that the most expensive aspect of that movie was the period wardrobe for the, for the characters, right? right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's science fiction about the word. present. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Just sitting there contemporary and that's, and you take people from the past time travel. Yeah. Offers great paradoxes and complexity. And well, we've just had a, a film win. Well, we have any awards this year in this genre space. It's, um, yeah, it's, yeah, fa- you know, fascinating to see, you know, films of, of a popular nature working in that genre space actually, you know, being so innovative and, um, and, and kind of celebrated. Yeah. And, and very similar to awards films, they're done by hand. I mean, those, those are the most, yeah. um, I think they had a team of something like four or five people working on most of the VFX. It was, it was incredibly wow. small and just <laughs> yeah. the, the explainer videos they've done on how they pulled off some of the, the metaverse shots of, of, um, of Michelle Yeoh just falling backwards through things. And it really is just a bunch of Polaroids at high speed or something. It's the most, the most basic and, and cobbled together things, but because the film's aesthetic puts you in that, mind space it all plays and because the story is about people fighting for people they love of course it all plays it, uh, i did um uh, hear the story from from john maynard about the, the moment in the navigator when the, the the um the the stick that's burning falls 
from the you know and, and from the black and white world into the color world yes and uh the vfx guy was a special effects guy and they literally painted a metal drum with the rocks on the wall and they in black and white and you could turn it like this <laughs> and then had in front of it the burning um bit, bit of wood with two bits of string <laughs> and then they filmed it so you got someone doing this with the dry i love that you know i mean my last film that played at toronto has a puppet in it uh, it's a fish it's a very expensive puppet but <laughs> i've always enjoyed the mechanics of that stuff you know it's not a cartoon i think sometimes the hyper photo realistic digital animations are um are like an animation, like a digital animation, and really good and incredible and done by great artists. And they'll be done by AI soon. So you'll just say, I need a background, but <laughs> and it'll, it'll generate one for you. Whereas I like the kind of practical effects, practical effects. Oh, yeah, no, you got to have something for the actors to see and touch. The, the, the AI backgrounds will be giving away They'll, they'll give themselves away immediately because they'll all have six fingers or something. It's, they can't do fingers and they can't do teeth. It's very disturbing. At least they're right. Yeah, so, apparently it's still the best way to see if something is, the quickest way to see if something is fake is to just look at the eyes, the teeth, and the fingers. Right. Isn't that fascinating? Which I think like some basic predatory prey, predator-prey instinct that we all have where you you know, you see if someone's smiling or menacing, and then you see if there's a weapon in their hand, some lizard brain thing. And naturally, that's the thing that computers fall down on. Wow. Wow. Yeah, significant, significant moment in uh, history. I, you know, on this recce that I'm on now, flying on, my, on the plane, I had the internet and I, I hadn't used an AI before. And I got on one and I thought I'm flying between Australia and Dublin on, that, on this trip at that time. And I'm on the, my laptop. And I'm conversing with this AI and I was testing it, you know, and I got it to write some pages of a script for me. I just, <laughs> I said, oh, a couple walking across Sydney Harbour Bridge, haven't seen each other for years. They don't talk, but they hold hands. That's all I said. I said, give me the first page of the script. Boom, this page. And the thing that surprised me was the imagery was really strong. It, it, it was detail and it ended with, you know, and as they walk off, not speaking, holding hands, you know, he looks out across the, Sydney Harbour and the light refracting. I mean, the thing that my daughter pointed out to me was I, I mentioned no gender in my brief. Okay. But the gender bias was that it wrote a page of a script where the protagonist was male and the antagonist was female. So, you know, this, this issue of gender bias that we fight against in all our creative, you know, is um, fascinating. I know yeah. we're talking off topic here, aren't we? But hey. <laughs> it's all evolutionary. It's fine. Uh, but I was going to ask if there if there was something, and we sort of have covered it, but if there was something from uh, the Navigator or even words other works that you've used yourself, have borrowed or cited or outright stolen for your own work. I, I don't really see anything, but I mean, I'm always... No, I, I like... Um, parallel time frames and I think all my works have them and that you know I have this kind of feeling in life that you know someone early in my 20s talked to me about you know a study of how much of any day do you does someone think about the present the past or the future and we kind of in in equal measure really you know unless we're highly evolved 
and you know are really good at mindfulness and and meditation we pretty much only spend about a third of the day thinking about the present Mm. and the past and the future so cinema does this really well i think cinema allows you to move between time frames and and flashbacks have a bad name people go you know they have a bad name because they're often just used for narrative exposition but i think what vincent did in the two time frames would be something that I loved. I hadn't even formed my philosophical approach to filmmaking at that time, but it was definitely something that I that I really loved. And I think in my work, you know, I would probably say there's some influence there of Vincent in terms of him doing a massive big time jump and then moving back at the end and, and framing the story. And then not only moving back, but almost then when he goes back, not not even acknowledging whether it were the future was a dream. Is it the future? Did they go to the future? Is it some fictional, you know, imagination? Um yeah, but nothing nothing more specific than that, really. I mean, I th- I would say that and then of course the other massive influence is landscape and vigil. Right. And the dry trilogy that I'm doing at the moment, each of the three, I've done two of them and exploring adapting the third you know, that concludes the trilogy but they're they're all set in diff- completely different natural environments and i think definitely I, I there is no comparable filmmaker that i can think of that captured landscape as well as vincent did in vigil and yeah. there's some pretty amazing filmmakers that have captured landscape <laughs> but 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 i think that's sublime that film is sublime uh it and is that, it's that, absolutely that's influence is incredible in me yeah, it's a wonderful thing. I'm so glad you we got to talk about that as well as the navigator. I mean, have you ever been tempted to just have some 14th century peasants pop up out of a hole in one of your films, just off in the distance? It doesn't have to be the focus, <laughs> but just just any sort of throwaway. You know, I haven't been, but it's funny now that you say it. It feels like it would be incomplete in my career <laughs> not to, not to pay some quite significant homage to uh, to Vincent's work. And, um, yeah, so watch this space. You, you'll be the first person to pick it. <laughs> you'll be like, ah, oh, okay. I'll do it in my next film just for you. Just something in the background that, uh, that you'll go, okay, okay. That's what he's doing. My thanks to Robert Connolly, whose new film, Blueback, is available on digital and on demand across North America right now. Thanks also to Ali Lemaire Shedden. She knows what she did. Robert's not on Twitter, but you can find The Navigator on Blu-ray from Aero Video in the UK, US, and Canada, and from Umbrella Entertainment in Australia. It's also streaming on Tubi in the US and Canada, and on Canopy and Aero in the US, and available to rent or buy on various VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of someone else's movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week.